Today we're going to be talking to Dr. David Spong. Dr. David Spong retired in 2004 after a 43-year career in the aerospace industry. During his career, he grew from an individual contributor in the engineering and technical disciplines to becoming vice president and general manager of Boeing Airlift and Tanker Programs. In 1998, David led the $3 billion program to winning the highest honor for quality performance given in the United States, the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award for Manufacturing. David was then promoted to president of Boeing Aerospace Support, a $4 billion business. There, David led the Aerospace Support Organization to achieving the 2003 Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award for service. David Spong is the only two-time winner of the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award for two different organizations in two different sectors, both manufacturing and service. In 2017, David became the first recipient of the E. David Spong Lifetime Achievement Award from the Baldridge Foundation. This award, which bears his name, continues to be given to those like David who have made extraordinary contributions to quality in the United States. I'd like to uh, introduce Bill Belgard, who's going to be joining me today uh, in the interview. Welcome, Dr. David Spong. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. David, I want to I want to go back in time a bit um, and talk a little bit about the C-17 program, which which was really an extraordinary, I think, example of a, of a transformation of an organization. Uh, and you were a big part of that. Uh, first, as a as the chief engineer in that program, and then later as the uh, pres the vice president and general manager of the uh, program. What were the major problems facing the program when uh, this whole big change began, and about what time frame? I joined the program in the, in nineteen one, and at that time it was a very troubled program. Um, the, there was a writer, and still there, I think, for the LA Times called Ralph Erdebabian, and he used to talk about the troubled, beleaguered C-17 program. And like all programs that get in tr trouble, there were many, many causes, one of which was it was a firm fixed-price contract with the U.S. government. It sounds like a good idea, particularly if you're a taxpayer. But no one, certainly at the company, and no one in the government was used to managing such programs. And they were used to saying, I don't like this, please change it. And the company engineers would say, okay, I'll change it. And when you're on a fixed price, as you can guess, that gets you in a big trouble. When, when you are having difficulty keeping with the budget, what do you do? You do the bad stuff. You scrimp off quality. You constantly strive to make the schedule, trying to make the schedule add costs. And so the program was behind schedule. It was over cost and it was not of high quality. And, you know, what else is there when you think about it? And it doesn't mean there were any bad people on the program. It just meant they were really in an impossible situation. And of course, the other thing that happens then is your customer, which in this case is the procurement people and the company people, start to fight and don't get along together and don't cut each 
dollar and his slack. Again, you've got the seeds of program not working well. And, and I must admit, when I first joined the program, I wondered what sins I must have committed, <laughs> if you will, put on that program and wondered how on earth we could ever fix it. And how did, how did the, uh, you know, fixing begin? How did you get that program kind of turned around? What were the key things that happened? What happens, which is, of course, classic, in that the, there were basically three organizations involved. The procurement people in Dayton, Ohio, the so-called system program office. For the Air Force. DPRO office, Defense Procurement Review Agency, and of course the company. At a high level meeting with, with the government, it was decided we're gonna fix this program and they reassigned the top three people from those organizations. And they brought in new people. One could view that as punishment for the people who were there, but really I think it was, let's make a fresh start. And the more money, duh, the company put in more money. And there was a literal handshake between those three people to say, we're going to make this work. And we made it work by having joint meetings where you could say what was needed to be said. We formed teams between the government and the company such that during a review period, for example, both the government representative and a company representative stood up in the front of the room and defended where they were and where they were going. Whereas in the past, it was always the company person up there and everyone throwing shots at him. And, you know, it's amazing when you start to work together how you make progress. We also, within the company, not really related to this issue, embarked on a journey using the Malcolm Borges criteria. Just a little background, that program was started in 1987, and one of the founding fathers was one Sanford McDowell, um, cousin of the founder of Sandy McDowell, uh, James McDowell, he, he helped start the program and by then his, his son, John McDowell, uh, was running the company. And he said, we're gonna use this, this framework to help us improve. And we in, in Long Beach struggling and you know, when you're so deep in the hole, there's only one way up, we latched onto that. And, you know, at one level, the framework is nothing extraordinary. You know, basically, focus on processes. Get all your processes in control. Lots more leadership things in it. But basically, it was get your, get your manufacturing and engineering processes under control, which we started to do. By the way, not, most of us were not believers in that process in those days. I certainly wasn't. You know, I'm grounded in physics and engineering and that sort of soft stuff wasn't terribly exciting to me. But I am an engineer and I noticed as we went along, things got better and our score 
on board this criteria got better. And I thought, you know, maybe there's something to this. And in 1997, we applied for the big award. Up, and, up until then, it was all internal. And we didn't receive the award. The good news for me was my boss, Don Kozlowski, who led the program to that point and really was instrumental in turning it around, retired. Uh, actually, that was when Boeing and Nadal Douglas merged. So then we applied again in 1998, and of course now I'm in charge, and we received the award for 98, so I got all the credit, but obviously the real credit was what had happened over those some six years to uh, improve everything we were doing. David, uh, you, you achieved the Malcolm Baldrige Award in 98, and as you say, a lot of work had been done uh, prior to that, leading up to that to that point, you're now in charge of the program. What other things were happening that helped sort of transform the culture that that uh, were even beyond uh, what you were doing in the Baldrige area? Part of the culture, of course, shift because we were all our destinies were all linked, and that's amazing what that does for a team. But also within the company. Uh, we had a union workforce, uh, a UAW, United Auto Workers. And when I got there, we had what I would describe, when I got there, we, I would describe the worst labor management relations I'd ever seen. And in those days, maybe you remember it, we all wore suits. And so every now and again, I'd walk across the factory floor, maybe to look at the airplane, to look at something. And the basic reception I got from the workers was, maybe not quite these words, but what the hell are you doing here? And of course they knew I wasn't a worker because I didn't have coveralls on. Um, we then instituted a program called then employee involvement. I think these days it's more commonly talked about employee engagement, but it was a means of building teams with the union workforce and, and basically empowering them to do good work. And it drastically shifted the working relationship within the company such that when I would walk out on the factory floor later on, comments would be, how can I help you? What are you looking for? And it, nothing happens overnight, but it, it was an incredible transformation of the way we work together with, with the team. You know, one thing you can't do with unions is give bonuses to individual people. But you can give bonuses to everybody. And we set up things like uh, cost sharing where we put a budget out, which we knew we could live with in terms of the overall cost of the airplane. And if the, we beat the budget, then the money saved could be shared with the union workforce. Something like 
a real bonus to make people work hard and do a good job. Um, we, we had an occasion where we had visitors and there was a small work team in the paint hangar, which is a big deal in a aer big airplane. And they, the union people were bragging about that they reduced the size of their team through using Lean and Six Sigma and tools of that. And, and no one in the union ever had a reduced workforce. But they were so proud of what they'd done, they were bragging about it. And one other takeaway that I remember, I, I was there for one round of contract negotiations with the UAW. And I presume it's standard. I only was, was at one company. People sat on one side of the long table, union leadership on the other. And this was the big union. I mean, union leadership came from Detroit and started off giving a wonderful complimentary comment about the C-17 workforce and management. And then on the side of our effort was the commercial piece of of Douglas, then now piece of Boeing, and lambasted them up one side and down the other. And basically was because there was no employee involvement on that side of the airfield. I felt very embarrassed, but I also felt a bit of me kind of amazed and pleased at what we've managed to pull off. That's a, that's a great story, David. Um, when you became Vice President and General Manager of Airlift and Tanker Programs, and you got that promotion, and now now it's all yours. What was uh, your main objective at that point? What were you trying to achieve? That really, if, if you've ever worked on a big program, or maybe any program, you know there's always myriads of issues that come up that need to be resolved. We need to sell more airplanes. Way back when there were 220-ish aeroplanes envisioned for this program, and a major reset that was reduced to 120, and then 40 at the deep point in the program, the bad point. So we got the 120 restored, and we got it restored with a unique a multi-year contract program. As most of we know, when you contract with the US government, you do it on a year-by-year -year basis. And there's two elements. You need appropriations and you need authorization. And if you don't get both of them, you don't get your contract. And it's always a pain. We had, a, I think, something like a 10-year contract with the US government, which meant while we still needed the money ultimately to be appropriated, we didn't need it authorized every year. We had to authorize for 10 years. That is magical in terms of long-term planning because it means all your suppliers see that you've got orders way out there and therefore they are willing to invest because they're gonna recoup in the later lot years. So it means you get investment from your, from your suppliers, even investment from your own company. And the other 
brilliant piece of a multi-year contract, at least in this case. We were allowed to take monies from out-year lots and spend it in near-year lots. It sounds like stealing. But just for a silly example, if I got a dollar contract for 10 years and I take $10 out of my next year contract and use it to fund cost savings in this year's contract, when I get to next year, I've now saved the money. I realize the savings that will continue for the next 10 years. So we constantly reach forward to funds, brought them into now years, use them to invest in quality and cost reductions, and then reap the benefit as we went forward. Well, the Air Force did you to do that because it worked. Because it worked. We used to keep a running total of each project that we approved. On an individual project, sometimes they achieved no cost savings, Sometimes they achieve 50% cost savings. But overall, I think our cost savings were about just over 80% of what we predicted they would be. The last airplane was going to cost a heck of a lot cheaper than the earlier airplane. And what it meant was we could bid, and we did bid, for 60, a program for 60 more airplanes with a 25% cost reduction in them. 25% of $200 million an aeroplane. And the Air Force didn't really know what to do with this initially. And then finally, they said, okay. So that took us to 180 aeroplanes. And then because everyone got to love this aeroplane, the number went to over 200 that the U.S. Air Force took. And we also sold them to the UK, to Australia, to Canada, I think to India. I sort of lost track as I le left the program in 2000. But all of that was enabled by this constant focus on quality improvements and, and cost reduction that went with that. That was one of the major things that, that we focused on. Other things... The customer is always looking for more improvements in what they're buying. And one of them was extended range, the capability, in essence, to transport fuel to remote sites. And so we added uh, fuel tanks over the fuselage. You know, this is a big airplane. The wings are very big and very deep. And you've got that whole chunk of space above the cockpit and the luggage compartment that's just sitting there empty. It was a big cultural issue with that. A lot of people in the Air Force didn't want fuel above them. I don't somewhat blame them. But in the end, we convinced them it was doable. And I forget which ship it cut in, but we cut it in reasonably soon. And of course, they loved the extra range it gave them and the ability when they landed a remote site to offload fuel to other vehicles that they could use it. And then wonder of wonders, the Air Force said, we now want to retrofit all the earlier aeroplanes with the same capability, which of course was more money for the company because we were doing the maintenance and up upgrades for, for the aeroplanes from that point on. And I think that program actually is still going on. 
the number of airplanes I remember, David, the last time I saw it was over 350. I wrote them down, Bill, somewhere. Um, two, actually, 279, it said, where, wherever I was looking. And then, of course, all these other overseas buyers took it right. over 300. I think ultimately it got well over 350. Yes. David, uh, you uh, then went from the C-17 program to aerospace support and became the president of aerospace support uh, around 2000, is that right? 2000, yes. Yes, and uh, aerospace support, a service organization, what was different about it? What were the challenges that it was facing? Yes, was asked to leave my wonderful C-17 program and take over aerospace support. It was a program that was doing okay. It wasn't a winner. Um, and to be quite honest, we, like a lot of aerospace companies, viewed support as sort of a necessary evil. It's kind of like when you go to a new car dealership, all the shiny new cars, that gets you excited. You go around the back, and that's where they're changing the oil and the tires and things of that. Kind of boring, kind of necessary, but not terribly exciting. Um, I think things have changed since that attitude. Uh, but in, in a lot of cases, it is a low-margin business. Because, again, the government, if you ever look at the government budget, all the, shall we say, argument or discussion goes about new procurement, new weapon systems. But there's this whole slug of support money that must come every year to keep all of its weapon systems going. Why buy them if you aren't going to maintain them? And in addition, the military always wants upgrades, and the upgrades usually come in the avionics piece of the airplane. And so I forget how many blocks that the C-17 has, for example, many, many blocks. And you cut in these new blocks typically on a yearly basis, although it's not necessarily on a yearly basis. Um, so it is not a very exciting business, but it is a very necessary business. And I think only lately have companies began to take more interest in it. Uh, in fact, I think Boeing Commercial had, a, if you will, either outsource or let airlines and third-party people do the maintenance and of all their airplanes up to a certain point. And then, I won't remember, but something in the last 20 years, they decided, no, they want to maintain their airplanes. And I think all the new ones are coming out, and typically they have a maintenance package with them in order to uh, obviously help take care of their brand and their image, and, and also as another revenue source. Program was doing sort of okay, but not brilliantly when, when I arrived there in 2000. So, so you, you kind of have this program, and it's, it's not a sexy program. It's not where people uh, kind of want to be. Um, is it fair to say that some of the, the, the people there that were in the program were not perceived well within the company or the program itself was not 
see particularly well within the company? I, I suspect if you asked that question, the answer would be no. No, we like them sort of. But <laughs> just to, to give an example, I went there as a young engineer. I think I was 24 uh, in St. Louis initially. And I would have left if they said I had to work on the support side of the business. I wanted to work on the exciting little pointy airplanes, right? And, and they're kind of fun and they're kind of new. And, you know, meeting with the jet jockeys that fly them is kind of exciting. Um, when, when I got back to St. Louis to leave the aerospace support business, and we'd been at it for a while, and we'd managed to shift the culture. We found out that the young engineers on the hotshot F-18 and AIM programs were calling up their friends in the support side of the business and saying, hey, I hear you're doing good stuff over there. How do we get to be a part of it? And I thought, how? How fantastic was that? And you do that by culture shift. And while again, I don't think I ever said I'm going to change the culture, all the things we did did change the culture. Let's let's talk about that for a minute. Uh, you know, you you have people now wanting to get into your organization when it perhaps was as well respected before. You've got this enthusiasm. You're seeing superior results. Uh, you eventually win the Malcolm Baldrige Award in 2003. What uh, did you do from a leadership standpoint to really begin that that culture shift? Probably the, the thing I did that was most visible was say, we're going to use the Malcolm Baldrige criteria. And when you think about it, I just came from an award-winning program. Fantastic program at that point. The return on everything was incredible. It was also, David, the most profitable program in the company for... Most profitable program. I won't tell you how much money we made on each airplane, but it was okay. You split it with the Air Force, too, in, in the, right. in the right. process. And it became the most profitable program in the company, I think, the last time I looked, for 11 years. You know. yeah. yeah. And, and so... You know, there's nothing like leading a winning program because you tend to get all the credit, which is unfair, but you do anyway. Um, one thing I did, which I didn't think about at the time as much, was I moved back to St. Louis because I kind of like Southern California. But I was there all the time. Um, I got to work early probably six o'clock in the morning. I stayed late, probably 6.30 at night. I was very visible. I was very approachable. I had an open door policy. Anyone could come and talk to me, and they did. We employed We used employee involvement again, and we used a process, which we'd used before, of executive champions. And so... If you look at the Borges criteria, there's seven categories, really six in the sense of 
you could assign to someone because the seventh one is results, if you will, the aggregate of all the others. First one is leadership, which means that was me. I, I had to lead that. And then each of the others sort of fit a leader in your organization, one of which was um, the customer relations, marketing, sales, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I assigned the vice presidents of each of those pieces of my business to lead that category. And we had an offsite where I said, we're going to review each category. We're not going to talk about running the business. We're going to look at where we are. And so, as you can imagine, we had all these people who were pretty proud of the fact they were vice president and they didn't do any work. I'm, I'm, I'm being sort of snotty just to make the point. And so I said, okay, I want each of you to stand up in front of us and tell us what your score is for the Malcolm Baldwin's criteria and how you're going to increase it. To stand there, you can't get someone else to do it. You've got to do it. They were mightily embarrassed the first meeting because they hadn't done anything and they didn't know how to do anything relative to improving their score. So the second time we did it, guess what? They had talked to people and I had brought some people in from Long Beach, one of whom is Debbie Collard, who I know you're going to talk to later. Debbie Collard was my right-hand person, knows all about Baldrige's taught it, understands best practices, etc., and was just waiting to help them. And so I can remember still to this day, again, the marketing people, the turnaround they made when they realized that they didn't even really know who their customers were and where they fit. And so gradually, each one of those people by me dare I say, led by me to improve the score of their area. One or two of them didn't understand initially and so have a quiet one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, say, what part of what I'm trying to do don't you understand and why are you not supporting me? And really, everyone either got on board or acted like they were on board. And in one sense, that's really all you want. Like it, oh, everyone that works for you says, oh, he's got it. He's got it. David, one of the things that I think is, is uh, amazing about your story, and, and you and I have had a chance to talk about this uh, many times before, but is the fact that you had this leadership team in place that, that you basically inherited when you took over the position. And that team pretty much stayed in place throughout this, this whole change. There wasn't a big turnover. You didn't go in and clean house. You basically changed the perspective and attitude and, and, and uh, areas of emphasis among the leadership uh, team itself. Could you just talk a little bit about that and about how, how you went about doing that and achieving that? And, you know, looking back on it, that, that, that's kind of amazing to me, too, um, because I know when I showed up, I would have loved to bring my team in from Long Beach and kick all that one out, right? You, you can't do that. And, in fact, 
my boss want me to make any changes for the first few months anyway. And, and you, you know, the, a book or an article about make no change for the first hundred days, something like that. And so I live with that. It, it, it sort of goes back to what the boss wants to get done ultimately will get done if, if he or she really wants it to get done. Um, and, and that means good or bad. Uh, I, I can remember when Jim um, McNerney, who later led Boeing, moved from GE, you know, he was a, a protege there, and he went to 3M and said, well, we're going to do Mean Six Sigma. And you know what? 3M did it everywhere. Then he moved to, to Boeing and fortunately didn't have that same edict. Basically, you say you're going to do it. Now, you get internal resistance, and sometimes you get you know, fifth column resistance. And that's where, you know, if I can see it, I can talk to them, which I did. And, you know, Jim Collins get on the bus um, and they all got on the bus. The ones that talk against you or that are against the program, but not to you, those are harder. And so when you talk to Debbie, you can ask her a question, but... Her job was to help everybody, and she was willing to do that. She spent a lot of time on airplanes flying to all these different parts of that organization. But she also was, in a nice way, a spy, because people would say things to her they wouldn't say to me. Of course, then she told me, and they knew she was going to tell me. So then I could go and work on those pieces. And... You know, some of the things that you do as a leader are hopefully instinctive, but I can remember a couple of them. Um, we had one of the contracts we had was with the US, with the UK government, and they were not happy with us. And we called a meeting in, in St. Louis, and everyone's assembled in this you know, U-shaped thing under the center of the table. And I walked in and I shook hands with everyone in the room. I didn't know who the hell they were, but I just shook hands with them to say, hello, welcome. And that someone came to me after and said, you know how powerful that was? You acknowledging those people as human beings and welcoming into the meeting. And we solved the problem, whatever it was. And I think the personal touch is so powerful. And fortunately, I have kind of an easy style. Um, people feel like they can come and talk to me, and so they do. Uh, I'm not standoffish. And I, all of that helps. Um, and and I, I would say another thing is, when you start in a company, you know, you don't even know where the bathroom is. Gradually, you get immersed in it and you know what's going on. But also getting your job done in a bureaucratic organization is not easy. When you get to the highest levels of the company, a lot of people forget how hard it is at the lower levels. And I don't think I ever forgot it. I think I always remembered what it was like 
that first day in those first few years when you just a peon and everyone seems to pee on you. <laughs> I think you're very used to talking to Baldrige audiences too. Okay? <laughs> they love you. So in, yes. in uh, 2003, the organization wins the uh, Malcolm Baldrige Award for service. Uh, first time um, a leader has led an organization in manufacturing and service to win the Malcolm Baldrige Award. What was the what was the reaction in the organization? How did people feel about, about that achievement? And and how, and you personally, how did you feel about that achievement? Wasn't that the first time that a service organization had won, David? I'm not sure, Bill. I think so. I think I think it was, but it wasn't. It wasn't a common thing at all. That it was all about manufacturing before that. I, I actually felt that it was incredible that we managed to do it. I mean, obviously, it was a goal, and I remember we had a, an offsite meeting in Wichita, Kansas. We were trying to get ready for get ready for it in the sense of improving. I sort of sensed a lull in the meeting, like, oh God, we're not getting there. And I uh, I just impromptu walked to the front of the room and I said, hey, you know, this may be your only chance to be on a Baldwin's winning organization. I probably didn't say it. But the reality was, if I wasn't leading it, it, it wouldn't be happening. And that's not bravado. It's just that I wanted to do it, partly because when you receive the Baldrige Award in one organization and go and run another one, you're sort of on a bound to use it, right? I mean, how, how can you walk around bragging about it <laughs> if you're the next organization? Right. I, I wanted it. I wanted it for the image it would set. Um, and I wanted it for the people. And the people had changed. Uh, you know, at some point, we could have a discussion about innovation. And, talk, and I know a lot of stuff is written about innovation being a pro process, and you can use this process to drive it. Not sure I agree with that. But the one thing I do agree with is if the culture is right, you will get innovation. If everyone gets killed every time they try something and it doesn't work, you won't get innovation. And so we, we had such an organization. We had it in Long Beach. In fact, the, the research arm of then McDonnell Douglas, then Boeing, used to come to us to try new things. And I said to them, well, why do you always come to me? And they said, because you'll try it. <laughs> one, one of them was to replace every fastener on the airplane, basically, with these new coated fasteners that prevent corrosion. And we did that. We changed every fastener on the C-17. And they're much easier to put in the airplane. They don't create hazardous waste afterwards. And they work wonderfully well but we were the only ones in the company that tried it. And again, it's that culture of letting people be innovative. And, and connected with that, in, in both programs, you had a big emphasis on employee involvement. Could you say a little bit about, you know, the employee involvement fit into the change overall and the things that happened as a result of it? You know, another name is self-directed work teams. And, and we did some of that where 
the natural supervisor of a team who was probably part of management wasn't the self-directed work team's leader. That was often a human person. Um, we formed teams where there was the manufacturing people, engineering people, some of our management people, quality people, all in the room together, working together. There was no, you know, Bill's not here or I've got to go over to the other side of the company. They were all there. And that drives accountability and a shared sense of achievement and responsibility. We, we had, I think, four levels of employee involvement training. And when they got to each level of the team, they would in, we would have a lunch with them. I'd invite them to lunch. And these people who had gone from hating each other became a team. They were teasing each other about the lack of hair or the size of their waistline and things of that kind. And they're really having a good time at lunch talking. And then I'd say to them, okay, now you've got to pay for your lunch. And they'd all look at me kind of funny, like, oh, God, you mean he's going to make us pay for this? And I'd point out, no, the way you pay for it is you've got to tell everyone how great it is. And it, it really did change the, the way these teams on the factory floor, you'd go out there, they'd have all their metrics on there, and they would explain them to you. They took ownership of their work and they were happy when they solved it and they were happy when they got savings in productions, less man hours, shorter span time. Incredible what, what this does. Bill, Bill had a big hand in it and the man by the name of Ed Chenille was our point man in the C-17 and later helped us in St. Louis when we did it. Um, initially, it was really the blue collar side of the, but later we extended it to the white collar as well as the blue collar. I remember one time when the Baldrige uh, Exanian, uh, they came in, they would come in on the off shifts and just go around and talk to people to see if what was being said on the day shift was actually happening uh, uh, in the evening and uh, overnight, uh, and they were amazed. It was it was at least as good on the off shifts as it was during the day, and uh, yes. That, yes, that's part of what carried the day for the for the program was the fact that uh, it ran it, it ran right straight through the organization. It was part of the, part of the culture. Yes, and you know one of those stories was uh, they. The, we said, you know, you can go there. Well, of course, we had 10 sites around the major sites in the U.S., 130 sites around the world. They weren't going to go. They obviously came to headquarters, and then they, they chose to go to Mesa, Arizona, where we refurbed the F-5s. And so we, as a courtesy, gave them a company airplane to take them there. So it's time to come home. You know, you filed a flight plan that guys want to leave. And as they started to walk to an airplane, this woman ran out of the building at them, yelling at them, saying, you didn't talk to me. I want to tell you my story. <laughs> so they had the courtesy to stop. And on the tarmac, 
and listen to her tell her story. David, you know, you've had two, two organizations that did extraordinary things, um, amazing transformation that occurred. Uh, what, if you were to sort of capture three or four, you know, lessons that uh, you think are most important from that experience, what, what, would, what would they be? Well, you know, it's probably trite these days to say it's all about leadership. Um, but it is, of course, all about leadership. And, you know, leaders come in all different sizes. Um, but, you know, caring for the people, respecting the people, trusting the people. You know, Southwest used to have a, a thing that said, hire for attitude, train for skills. I think that's true leadership as well. Um, and one of the things that always used to amaze me when I was in a meeting, and it could be a budget meeting or whatever, yeah, of an area I, I wasn't trained in. I'm trained as an engineer. and But everyone would defer to me. And really kind of scary. Like I knew it all. And I didn't. I was just winging it and hoping that they were doing. Um, but it is, it's always leadership. And I would say maybe one other thing about the leader bit is self-confidence. You've got to be proactive. You've got to act like you believe it can be done, even while on the inside you think, I haven't a clue. I hope these people know how to do it. So the main thing is, is leadership. Uh, the other takeaway, I think, is even if you don't want to apply for a National Quality Award, use the criteria. They are founded in the best practices around the U.S. They've been honed over many, many years, since 87. Um, and even if you don't set up a formal thing, look at them, see what is it, if you can answer those questions, you're doing it okay. And, and I'll give you an example of that. We had a man by the name of Jim Berry, who worked at McDonnell Douglas when I arrived on the C-17. And he'd been to several companies. Uh, he left C-17, he left McDonnell Douglas, and he went to Lockheed Martin. And he ended up running a division in Dallas Lockheed Missiles in Space or something like that. And I got a call from I, I barely knew him in Long Beach, but I knew him enough, I guess. I got a call from one of his people saying, would I be willing to fly to Dallas to meet him and talk about applying for the Borders Award? It was his last year at Lockheed. He was going to retire and he wasn't going to go any higher. But his division was doing very well. So I flew to Dallas and talked to him. And he got some people, consultants in, who wrote an application for him based on where they were. He hadn't used Baldrige criteria at all. And yet they were able to translate what he was doing, what they were doing as a team, into the Baldrige criteria and answer the questions. 
and they receive the bonus award. So you don't have to use the criteria. If you know how to do it and are doing it well, then do it. But the dummies like me who don't know, there's <laughs> a primer, a way, hey, can I answer this question? You know, how do I, as a leader, give a sense of legality, morality to the organization? And you think, do I do that? I hope I do that. <laughs> and if you can write it down, you're probably doing it. Yeah. All I say is just using those criteria are so powerful. And the other, and the last one, is invest in employee involvement or employee engagement or whatever it is. Because again, it is so powerful in bringing everyone together. Um, I, I guess one we I haven't talked about, and that is recognition. We used to have an event once a year I'm trying to remember the name of it. Anyway, it was it was kind of like the Oscars night. We would rent the Disneyland Hotel out here and we'd invite all the team leaders in with, to have dinner, bring their, their spouse or see. And you know, we basically chose the best performing teams in the organization. And we would put on tuxedos and we would introduce these team leads, and you, you get people from the factory floor who spend their life in coveralls, and you see them up on the stage with you, and the men are all dressed nicely, and the women have got all these nice dresses on. It's like, who are these people? It's <laughs> how powerful it was. Um, Silver Eagle, I think we call it. Maybe um, Then then when we did aerospace support, we did the same thing, except we let them name it. They called it the Atlas Awards because we're standing on top of the world. And they wanted to go to Vegas to do it. I didn't want to go to Vegas, but we went to Vegas. We had a big award ceremony there. Made people incredibly powerful. And a typical comment when the team got back to wherever they came from, the other people who didn't get to go said, how did you get to go to Vegas or to wherever it was? I want to go. Well, this is to get there by doing good things, achieving good performance. So that recognition and engaging the employees and, of course, leadership, just incredible. That's, uh, that's a great list. Uh, leadership, having that self-confidence uh, as you're demonstrating that leadership, using the Baldrige criteria, employee involvement, uh, emphasizing the importance of recognition. My, my last question is, is really, if, you're, if you were to give advice to an executive who's looking at an organization perhaps that's in a difficult spot, right now and uh, they're trying to turn it around, they're trying to transform it. Is there anything else you might add that you would, uh, you would recommend that they think about or do? So going back to the fact that the leader needs to have a can-do positive attitude, there are days when 
you're actually not feeling that. And one of the th things I felt was I always wanted what I don't think I named it, but I stole it, a kitchen cabinet. And that was four or five people who we could go into a room the door and say, what the hell over? I'm dying here. What are we going to do? And, um, and I think for most leaders, that's very powerful and effective because, you know, leadership is a lonely thing. You ultimately, if you're the top leader of the organization, it all falls on you. And because Debbie, as again, you're going to talk to her, she was a member of the kitchen cabinet. Um, and we had Jay Katmeyer, who Bill knows well, or knew well. Yeah. And Jeff Deckerbaum in St. Louis. And, and again, all of them, you, you, you could let your hair down with them. They didn't go out and tell the world that you really didn't know what you were doing. Um, and you could hope that between you, you could shore yourself up, you could cheer each other up, and you could come up with some solutions to some very difficult issues in the darkness of the room and then bring it out into the light and say, hey, this is what we're going to do and we can do this. <laughs> David, thank you very much. This has been uh, this has been wonderful getting the opportunity to, to chat with you about your uh, experiences. Thanks. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure talking to you.